Benjamin Boyce, welcome to the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast. Hello, Alan. How are you doing today? Wonderful. I just want you to know I'm a little bit nervous because up until now, I've been doing the Genius of Thomas Sowell podcast audio only. And this is the first time I will be visible okay. in an interview. And I don't like it. Oh, really? Okay. I don't like it already. Why not? I don't know. I just feel like Less how, I look, how I look is sort of irrelevant oh, yeah. to the task at hand. And I just feel like what, what I have to say is much more important. So I, I feel like people will be distract, distracted by visual, the visual. Maybe. Um, I, I find that the people who listen to podcasts don't need it. And the people who watch the video appreciate it. So, But now you have to really watch your facial gestures. Well, or, or at least let me watch them for you. Okay. <laughs> what got you into podcasting, though? That's such a weird, <clears throat> particular thing. It's like the herpes of the digital era. Like everybody eventually gets it, but everybody's got a particular story of how they got it. Okay, so um, a couple, uh, a few things actually. You know, you ever hear the Steve Jobs famous? Uh, commencement address at Stanford where he talks about connecting the dots. I can't recall it, but I have listened to it several times. He talked about how, you know, so many things happened in his childhood that led him to where he was today. And for example, taking a typography class in high school led him to designing the beautiful typography of the Macintosh. You know, that he says you could only see the dots connected when you look back in your life. You can never see it when it's unfolding. So here are the dots that brought me to podcasting. Uh, first of all, I grew up in the 60s and I used to listen to radio programs like The Lone Ranger and The Shadow. And I really loved the theater of the mind that those programs could create. You know, for example, you know, here comes The Lone Ranger. You know, and you, some guy was sitting in the studio with cups, you know, making that but you felt like you could almost smell the horse, you know? So I love that about podcasting is that it's real theater of the mind, different from YouTube, for example. The other thing, when I was a teenager, uh, I was huge into CB radios. Do you even know what that is? Uh, that's, not, that's not a ham radio, is it? Ham radio is a worldwide communication network. CB radio is more local. It's something you could have in your car. Even a walkie-talkie is a CB radio. Yeah, like truckers have. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And this was huge in the 70s. Uh, this is pre-internet days. And there was, I had, we lived in a 30-story apartment building in Queens, New York. And I slapped a, a big stick antenna on the roof of this apartment building without the permission of the building management. And or the I, FCC, I suppose. Or the FCC, and I purchased an illegal 300-watt amplifier. So here I was, this 16-year-old kid that could be heard all over New York City, way beyond what I deserved in terms of reach. And, <laughs> and here I was babbling away about what must have been complete nonsense to the adults on the channels. And it was just an amazing experience to be, you know, to have your voice uh, out there and to hear other people, not to know what anybody looked like. And it was just a great experience. I loved my handle was the purple people eater in case anybody out there from Queens is listening and knows me. So 
Um, what was great about the CB radio world was we had a local channel. It was Channel 5. And this was for Forest Hills, Queens. And everybody would listen who was in the neighborhood. And if we would call a coffee break, uh, which meant an, an actual in-person meeting, we would meet at, a, at, a, at the Georgia Diner on Queens Boulevard. And when I tell you that hundreds of people would show up at the Georgia Diner just to hang out with the other CB radio people, I mean, this was really huge. You know, and I love that world. And of course, the Internet replaced it. Um, and, uh, you know, now they're actually trying to, in a way, bring it back with all these apps where you just hear people's voices talking in real time. You know, like Twitter has its spaces. Um, what's the other one that Clubhouse that does that? was Clubhouse, the, right. Clubhouse is essentially CB radio on the Internet. That's exactly what it is. Um so that was, th those were two factors that sort of planted the seed of radio, the love of radio in my mind. And what really led to this podcast was I had taken on a reading challenge. I like to give myself challenges. It could be a push-up challenge or a pull-up challenge or, well, a couple of years ago, I took on a reading challenge. And my goal was to read, really read a hundred books in a single year. And one of the ways I was accomplishing that was I was going on two to three hour hikes in the mountains every morning. And I would of course get the audio book and also the ebook so that I could highlight great quotes that I love. So I was really sort of reading both at the same time. And I would go on these long hikes and I was plowing through some amazing, amazing books. It was one of the greatest experiences, greatest challenges I've ever undertaken. And some of the books that I were, was reading were Thomas Sowell books. And I always found them to stand out head and shoulders above all the rest. They were just so jam-packed with wisdom, uh, learning, um, intelligence, uh, intellectual acuity, just so much to them that when I got to about uh, book 96 in my challenge, I decided that I was giving up all those other authors and I was going to go deep into Thomas Sowell. I was going to read all 47 Thomas Sowell books and really absorb you know, this man's body of work. Ouvre. Say again? Yeah, I was just doing the French word. Ouvre. Uh, ouvre, his body of work. Um, and I, I said to my, I, I had this idea. I said, what would be the best way to learn Thomas Sowell? And then I just said, you know what? The best way to learn it is to teach it. Why don't I start a podcast hmm. to teach Thomas Sowell to whoever wants to listen. And it would force me to read the books in a lot more intense way, in a way where I know I'm going to have to summarize it for other people. So I just started this podcast. And, and I even said to myself, you know what, even if no one listens, I don't care. It's really for me as a way to go deep into these ideas. And, and so I started the podcast. And one of the things that I discovered was that I love the creativity of podcasting. I love the editing. I love the music. I love pulling clips off the internet and playing them. I love talking about the class. You know, I, I sort of, I didn't want to create a podcast where all I do is blah, blah, blah about my ideas. No one cares about my ideas right now. Um, you know, you know, I call it, I call the podcast, the genius of Thomas Sowell you know, if I were to do my own podcast, it would be the, the slightly above average intelligence of Alan Wolin. I mean, there's really not a lot there, but I wanted to really talk about Sowell and, and present his ideas and bring on the show people who 
both agree and disagree with the ideas. You know, I think it's important uh, to have people who vehemently disagree with soul. Why not? What are we afraid of? Someone might change our mind. You know, I mean, that's the worst case scenario. Right. But may I ask you a question? Of course. Like first principles kind of question. So your podcast is called The Genius of Thomas Sowell. Genius has different words, different etymology. It means kind of like the guiding spirit or, or the, the, you know, the, the, the creative spark, maybe one could say. So what is, having invested so much of your time and thought into soul, what is the defining characteristic or the essence, the, the first principle, the animating principle in his body of work? Or, or even just the, his first idea, like where he starts with, I guess, reality or, or what he's looking at. So, so I'll answer that in two parts. The first is why do I think Thomas Sowell is a genius? And what are the ideas that are so ingenious? Okay, so th to answer the question, why I think Thomas Sowell is a genius, I'm going to read a quote by Naval Ravikant. Quote, it is the mark of a genius to explain a complex topic in a simple way. And I think anybody who knows Sowell will be nodding their head right now. Yes, yes, that is one of the things I love about Sowell. The second quote I want to show you is an Isaac Newton quote. Quote, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So now these two quotes, so the, the, it, to me explains 50% and the other 50% of Sowell and why people who love him are such raving fans. We feel that by studying Thomas Sowell, we are standing on the shoulders of a giant. Sowell is a man who explains the world in a way that shifts the paradigms of your previous thinking and has you see the world in a much clearer fashion. So, so that's why I think I'm, I'm justified in calling him a genius. So what are the first principles you asked? I had a feeling you'd ask that. So I prepared a slide just for that question. Sowell, I think, has seven basic foundational principles that he discusses in almost all of his books. Number one, is that there are two dominant visions of human nature. There's what he calls the constrained vision or also called the tragic vision. And then the other one is what he calls the utopian vision. And he feels that which of these visions you adopt as your main vision is gonna determine how you see all the important issues of the day. He wrote a book that is considered by many to be even Sowell considers this to be his best book. It's called A Conflict of Visions. And he discusses these two visions of the world. And I would suggest when you're ready to read Sowell again, pick up that book. That's the book that Sowell says is his favorite. And that's the book that I think opens a lot of people's eyes up to the vision of the world, which they unknowingly and unconsciously have adopted. Any questions on that? No, keep Before them I coming. Go on. Keep okay, them coming. keep them coming. Fire away. So the second principle is that there are no solutions 
to the major human problems. There are only trade-offs. Yeah. And when, once you grasp this paradigm, it's hard to look at the politics and the economics of the day in the same way. Sure, mm-hmm. you could solve problem X by implementing policy A, but just be aware that you're now going to cause poli- problem Y. And then you're going to need policy B to solve problem Y. And then you're going to cause problem Z. And then you're going to need policy C to solve that. And it's going to be on and on and on. And that this constant chase for solving all of human problems is sort of like a dog chasing its tail. Okay. So one one moment then. So he he assumes or he agrees that humans have problems. Yes. And problems need to be solved or don't need to be solved. Like it's because it could be taken to one extreme that he's saying there's no such thing as progress, which I've heard and it kind of makes sense in certain ways. It's just we have the illusion of progress with technology, but it's just we're just kind of engaging with the problems and deferring the problem to another state. Well, <clears throat> let me let me show you a quote from Soul, which I think might answer your question. Let me find it. Quote, sometimes it seems as if there are more solutions than problems. On closer scrutiny, it turns out that many of today's problems are a result of yesterday's solutions. Yeah. The thing that, oh, so I'm, I'm going through a great courses course on uh, political thought from like somebody that starts with an H to somebody else that starts with an H. I think it's like Hegel to Habermas, but we, we start with Aristotle. Um, and you see, you know, we're going historically through the different political systems and the man who's uh, composing this excellent lecturer. Um, he's got a cool accent too. And I can't recall his name right now, but he is, you know, he's, he's showing how these different s- systems worked over different kind of periods of history and he's always going back and showing that there's an ethic that informs the political solution. There's an ethos that precedes or informs the the structure of the organization of you know, society and stuff. And what I'm trying to kind of figure out or use as a lens of trying to understand the modern problems that are most interesting to me, problems around gender not so much race. Gender's more salient to me, and race is kind of rather exhausting to me um, because of you know, looking at it, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to be anything other than a zero sum. But gender, however, is essential, or at least sex dynamics are essential. And over history, sex and gender have been articulated different in different cultures. And there are certain assumptions I'm thinking in the liberal uh, mindset or the modern mindset that have led the way to where we are now with gender. So I'm just trying to put this quote into context of what I'm kind of thinking with is that a lot of the problems that we see with gender broadly construed are actually problems not with gender itself, but to previous iterations or solutions, let's say, or articulations of gender, which isn't necessarily a solution in that I have a problem that I'm trying to fix, but rather there is this activity that happens in the world that we have to somehow organize. So a solution isn't just like a math problem. It's more of a 
articulation or something like that. And so a lot of social problems aren't necessarily definitive. Uh, and I wonder if that's what he means by a constrained or a utopian uh, solution, that the utopians are looking for the final <laughs> solution. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, for, for a utopian visionary, uh, human beings are infinitely perfectible. And if we just structure social institutions in just the right way, people will be their best selves. So let's engage in social engineering. Let's have all these policies to rearrange the chess pieces on the board in just the right way to win the game. Yeah. Whereas a tragic visionary like Sowell, like myself, hmm. would say, you know what? We humans are inherently flawed. We're always going to have the seven deadly sins. Plus there are probably a few more that haven't been named yet. And we just have to structure society in such a way to minimize as much as we can the negative consequences of these human sins, these human mm -hmm, flaws. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, but we're going to have to live with them. So just get used to it, you know? And, uh, you know, when you were speaking of gender a minute ago, here's, here's an example of how I would interpret, how I would look at the gender issue through the lens of a Sowellian framework. So, I remember when the Me Too movement started and, you know, society was going after like a posse in the middle of the night with torches, these toxically masculine characters, the Weinsteins, the Wieners, the whatever of the world. And as much as they may have deserved society's scorn, I remember saying to my wife, we need to be careful with this stuff because we are going to be really disturbing the fragile relationship between men and women with this kind of witch hunt. And lo and behold, as the years have gone on, I think it's become clear that the relationship between men and women in our culture is horrible. You know, you hear horror stories from the dating world of people not being able to find someone you know, severe loneliness, mm -hmm. people switching, you know, sexual orientation because they can't seem to find a partner, you know, in a certain orientation, you know, it, it's so much going on. And I feel like we've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And I think that's a perfect example of there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. So, so, and this is what we traded off. And so, in a Sowellian frame of mind, or you can refine this thought, I was just kind of grasping an insight here. It's that the relationship between men and women broadly construed or individual men and women in relationships, it can't be, it has to be respected first and foremost as imperfect and messy. And then we can start to design, I, I don't even like the word solution, but design um, an ethos or, or uh, a relationship like gender as a, not a social construct, but a social conduct that is cultivated in order to facilitate this relationship and, and make sure that these, these relationships more likely than not fall on the good side of things. But if we try to go at it head on 
and create some sort of narrative to say that this is what a man is and this is what a woman is or this is what a woman should be and this is what a man should be. And that happens on the left and the right. In radical feminism, in certain branches of radical feminism, they want to do away with gender and they have this concept of patriarchy. Like there's this patriarchy. It's kind of like this demiurgical force that's controlling and oppressing women and we have to dismantle that. And then on the right far right weird trad side they're like there's the alpha male and then the the submissive woman and the woman needs to be chased and the man needs to be like this really these really rigid roles but both of them are kind of lopsided because they're not really re respecting that i like what you said that fragile relationship that's something that has to be cultivated and furthermore i would have to say it's it's not the zero-sum game the relationship between man and woman give rises to all of life and therefore give rises to all of culture so we have to we have to understand that there's an asymmetry there. And so we have to approach it, I guess, first and foremost, with respect. And I guess a clarity, a Sowellian clarity of what is rather than what we want to be. And we want change to be slow and gradual and empirical and to test it and to yeah. see how it goes. You know, these sudden revolutionary movements like the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter movement are- Or the very sexual revolution. Let's go back to the 60s, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I think Mao once said, the jury is still out on the French revolution, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> um, but I think the jury is still out on the feminist revolution. The jury is still out on Black Lives Matter. The jury is still out on me. You know, like I think that until we see- you know, where the dust settles on a lot of these movements, it's not really clear that they were a net positive for society. Mm -hmm. And so you're introducing a um, a core conservative principle. I think this is Burkean. And I'm still a neophyte when it comes to all these, all these names and all these uh, ideologies. But this concept of slow, gradual, empirical change, where there is a basis of inherited culture that is tested it's not perfect yet so if we want to start to change and we need to change so there's this active kind of there is a progress there is we're going to try to solve and refine our understanding and and make society we're going to try to perfect society but we're going to be very slow and empirical about it we're going to test the waters and you know uh, devote uh, if, if we're if we're farmers, we're going to devote a, a small portion of our field to trying out new things, not completely raise everything else and try to grow like this brand new soybean, right? We're going to take that. So we're and that's a core concept of Sowellian thought. Then this gradual 100%, method, hundred percent gradual, empirical testing. You know, so one one example, I, I devoted a whole episode to minimum wage laws. And Sowell wrote a lot about this in his book, Basic Economics, which I think is the one that you bailed on. And uh, his really? main argument is that minimum wage laws sound great as a yeah. moral crusade, but that they cause unemployment and they distort and undermine the economy. And that, you know, that's his position. Same thing and, with rent fixing, too. Yes. I remember this part yes. of the book. Yeah. Yes, cities that have rent control have the most expensive rents in the country. And it's, you know, it's the exact opposite of what the intended, uh, you know, uh, goal is. And that actually brings me to point number three on my slideshow of Sowell's seven guiding principles. Number three, the actual consequences of a public policy are more important than the intentions of policymakers. So the one I always think of when I read this is the Affordable Care Act 
Obamacare. It's supposed to make our health care affordable. Well, my uh, hmm. health insurance tripled in the year after uh, the Affordable Care Act was implemented. And, uh, you know, so, it, you know, the, the, the intentions of these policies are really unimportant and how they name them is especially, hmm. you know, insanity inducing mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they often have nothing to do with, uh, you know, what really happens. And, you know, as Sowell always says, the real minimum wage is zero. Wait, what do you mean by that? <laughs> or what does he mean by that? Because the when you're unemployed, you're now making ze- when you're unemployed because of the minimum wage, your wage is now zero. That's the real minimum wage. Well, I could even push that further and say if you are unemployed and getting unemployment, then it's less than zero. Is exactly one. yeah for sure negative three thousand a month or whatever you get you know yeah. depending on what you earned before. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, but at the same time, he recognizes that there are uh, ways to make our society better or there's a problem with poverty. So, or, or no, he doesn't think that poverty is in and of itself a problem. I'm just trying to figure out, like, is there any positive thing? Well, I think, you know, I don't want to speak for Sowell because yeah. he's, you know, he's still alive. He's 93, I think. Yeah, you should have him on. And uh, he's still writing books. He just came out with a book called uh, Charter Schools and Their Enemies, I think, two years ago. And I bet you there's another one in the hopper. But um, I don't want to speak for him. But the way I interpret your question about poverty is that Sowell might say something like this. He's like, it never ceases to amaze him how these words have a magical effect on people. And you know, what we call poverty, you know, is a very relative thing. You know, your average poor person in America uh, has a car, has a $1,000 phone, has a big screen television with cable TV, has, uh, and, and one of the statistics he names, he says, the average poor person in America has more living space, more square footage in their home than the average person in Europe has, which is one of those paradigm shifting, you know, so we call people poor because they fall below some arbitrary line. Mm -hmm. But when you look at them, they're, they're in the, probably the top, you know, one or two or 3% in the world Mm -hmm. in terms of income and living standard. So, you know, so no, we were never going to solve the problem of poverty ever. Because even if everybody was a millionaire, those people would be poor compared to the billionaires. And we would we would need to solve the problem of poverty in America if everybody was a millionaire. Because yeah. it, so so it's it's one of those phantom issues that is more of a moral crusade than anything else. And as so would often say, you know, if people really cared about you know solving poverty, they would ask themselves, how does China lift? How did China lift so many millions of people out of poverty every month? What did they do that did that? And what they would conclude was that it was capitalism. It was economic freedom. And it was not handing out free money, which did it. 
But, well, uh, it was authoritarian, though. I mean, China's very authoritarian. So it was a top-down capitalist solution with uh, a lot of you know, sausage being made, uh, or at least things kind of falling to the wayside. It wasn't necessarily humanitarian or uh, liberatory in the Western sense. Everybody was kind of directed to do this thing. And also, it was informed by a work ethic in the culture that was either hard enforced or soft enforced by just the culture. So I just add to that, that it's not just um, capitalism itself, but it's a authority, authoritarian decision informed by a, uh, a cultural uh, ethos of working in that, in that way. Fair enough. So, but so poverty is one thing that's relative. Crime's not relative. Like a murder is a murder. Uh, having being poor with an iPhone is one thing relative to you know Elon Musk exists and you exist, but either either there's more or less murders going on. So that that's definitely a problem that we can see. The murder rate goes up, the murder rate goes down, and so I would suppose that the solution, or not the solution, but it would be better if we had less murder than more murder. So what are some of the thoughts around crime? Or does uh, Seoul just uh, <clears throat> s stay within the economic thoughts? Uh, no, are you kidding? He is all... Let me, before I answer that question, okay. let me uh, show you a quote that I think kind of answers it for you. Here you go. Quote, the kind of people who talk about the root causes of crime never include leniency end quote. So, you know, what Sowell would, would say about crime is that if people really cared about crime, they would study what policies reduce crime. Like, for example, taking criminals off the streets and putting them in jail. That reduces crime. That has historically been shown to reduce crime. And leniency has historically been shown to increase crime. So I, I don't think he's, you know, ambiguous on this topic. He's, you know, he's a conservative. He, he believes in law and order. And he believes that, and the reason he believes in that is because he's studied the empirical evidence. See, one of the things that's great about Sowell he, is he's a true empiricist. If he found out that leniency led to a reduction in, in crime, he would... wedded to a certain ideology. He's wedded to studying the empirical evidence of history. Mm -hmm. And that's what one of the things he's masterful at is really studying that empirical history and drawing his conclusions from it and not the other way around. So who decides is much more important is is a much more important factor than what gets decided. Hmm. Sowell often talks about how putting, the, putting decision-making in the hands of people who pay no price for being wrong is a disaster waiting to happen. That one of the great things about the capitalist system and the profit-based system is that when business owners make a mistake, they pay for that mistake. Whereas when government bureaucrats make a mistake, 
not only do they not pay, but they often get rich in the process. Mm-hmm. And that decision-making should be distributed and put in the hands of people who pay a price when they're wrong. And one of, one of the uh, uh, arenas where this is playing out incredibly right now is in the education system. Teachers all across the Western world are indoctrinating their students with all kinds of experimental ideas about gender, about race, about this, about that. And the fact is that these teachers pay no price for the damage they may be causing to these children. Who pays the price? The parents. And society. And and society, but not the teachers. And if we let these teachers decide what gets taught to the kids, we are putting the decision-making in the wrong hands. Another example of this is abortion. Great example. Who cares if you're for abortion or against abortion? Everybody's got an opinion. What's the difference? I'm not going to tell you my opinion. Who cares? No one cares. But what's really important about the abortion issue is that we agree at the very least who gets to decide the issue. Should it be nine people in black robes or should it be elected representatives? And if it is elected representatives, should it be on a federal level or a state level level? We can't even agree on that. You know why we don't agree on that? Because we don't even talk about it. Everybody's so focused on whether they agree with abortion or disagree with abortion that we haven't even agreed on what's the best way to decide. Let me give you an example from my own life. My wife and I have four children. We're driving in the car one day and I'm like, let's pick a song. Do we want song A or song B? And there was like a whole bit disagreement about it. I said, okay, let's take a vote. So three of the kids voted for song A and the fourth kid voted for song B. So I put on song A. And what did the fourth kid do? Yelled and screamed for the entire song. (laughs) Did not let us enjoy the damn song. bastard. See, she did not fundamentally agree with the vote being the deciding factor, right? And I think that that's what happened with Roe v. Wade. The Supreme Court made a decision about abortion, but at least half half the society never really agreed that that's the right way to make this decision. They didn't just disagree with the decision. They didn't agree with the way it was made. So how, who decides and how it gets decided is much more important than what gets decided. Okay. On, on the level of community decision-making. Yes. The process, if you have the process in place, then you can actually get things done. And even if you make a mistake, at least you're all in it together and can work together to refine the process or to correct the mistake that was made. But if, there's if the process itself is in question, then hell or chaos ensues. And that's pretty much where we're at. We're in the chaos ensuing phase of the abortion debate, right? Yeah, well, it's interesting because there are, um, and again, this appears in the gender debate about what, uh, what, 
what the law has to say about the uh, medicalization for life of children based on a gender identity or a gender dysphoria or some sort of incongruence, let's say, between their perceived sex and their desired sex. To what degree should the law have anything to say in that? And you have the federal government pushing out this kind of specious document saying that we're going to do this for these reasons, kind of. And then you have a state like Florida saying, no, we're not going to do that. And then you have a state, uh, I think it's Kansas or Oklahoma, that's saying it's absolutely illegal, like at all to do anything in this direction. And then on Twitter, in the cultural climate, you have people arguing back and forth. This is save lives. This is going to destroy lives. This is going to save lives. This is going to destroy lives. But it seems like the first conversation to have to have is that what is the relationship between law and medical practice? And then what is this medical practice actually about? And to what degree should the law be involved in that? And then how do we go through law or policy, let's say, in order to approach this issue in a way that not just satisfies people, because I don't think people are going to be satisfied because they are ideologically motivated. But if we can actually produce empirical evidence and we have a mutual respect or the majority respect for empirical evidence, that, that, that even comes first before even bringing up evidence, then we can move towards some sort of solution that will facilitate um, good outcomes for the children specifically involved. So, so you're saying you agree that how we make these, these decisions is equally, if not more important than what we end up deciding. Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm also opening the can of worms that we have to have certain values before we can even begin to decide on anything. Like if no, if the majority of people don't believe in empirical evidence, believe in ideology and the minority believes in empirical evidence, less than ideology, then the empirical evidence doesn't have power anymore. It's more about this ideology, which might always be the case. And there might need to be some sort of ideology that makes empiricism sexy. Um, and maybe souls, the man that can do that for us. He actually is. You're right about that. Very sexy, very, very sexy. So why, and why is that? What, what is the power? Um, like by sexy, I mean like attractive, powerful, um, just, yeah, kind of just attractive, something that you want to identify with and, and work, uh, organize life through. Well, Sowell is, he's got the, um, he doesn't just have intelligence, he has wisdom. Um, and if you, if you ever watch his videos on YouTube, you realize you're in the presence of someone with a deep, deep wisdom born of experience and there's a certain, what I, I like to call it pattern recognition. You know, Sowell has, has been around the block enough times that he starts to see the same patterns over and over and over again. You know, I, I, what I always say is same shit, different decade. You know, he, he's just seen it too many times. And, you know, for example, he talks about um, uh, race hustlers, you know, the guys who drum up animosity between the races and uh, get rich doing it. And he's seen it so many times. He's seen so many of these characters. He just needs to see them open their mouth five, six words. He knows already what he's looking at. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So you mm -hmm. can't fool him. Mm -hmm. 
And um, that's what I mean by the wisdom and the pattern recognition. And one of the great things about Sowell is he doesn't just study what's going on in the United States. He goes all over the world. So, for example, affirmative action. I bet you most people don't even know that many other countries around the world practice affirmative action. Probably most people think it's a black-white thing going on here alone. But Sowell wrote a book called Affirmative Action Around the World. And he went all over the, the world studying affirmative action programs. And he, he discovered many amazing, amazing things. Like, for example, in Malaysia, if you go to the technical and scientific universities there, it's almost all Chinese in the you know, ethnic Chinese, not Malaysians, that have achieved these high positions. And that in Malaysia, they have affirmative action for the Malaysian majority. Hmm. They reserve seats just for the majority. You know, we always assume that affirmative action is supposed to help the minorities, but it's not really the way it works. Um, so, so this is what I mean by pattern recognition. He starts to see, and, and, and he asks himself, how, does, how is affirmative action working out in India for the untouchables, yeah. in Malaysia for the Malaysians? What's the pattern that he's discovering? The pattern is, is that it actually hurts these people who are the intended beneficiaries. Because affirmative action, I'm just going to take a shot from the hip. Affirmative action, um, it it's a, I, to use the word that we both wish we invented, it's, it's a mediocracy rather than a meritocracy. It eventually rewards or incentivizes below average in order to, um, you know, to, to fix the disparity, we're just going to put people who are below average into positions of power. Da, 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 da. Well, yeah, yes. I mean, Sobel says there are three negative effects of affirmative action. Number one is it hurts the society because it promotes the mediocrity. Okay. Number two, it hurts the university system because it degrades the value of those university degrees. Yeah. And number three, it actually hurts the people who are boosted and promoted. How does it do that? It does that by mismatching them with the wrong institutions. So Sowell gives the example of uh, when he wrote his book, Inside American Education, in 1993, he said, at MIT, the average Black student at MIT is in the top 10% in math in the country. But at MIT, he's in the bottom 10% of the class. And what does this do to these students? It's demoralizing. It makes them feel insecure. It makes them feel like they're, they have impo- they're an imposter. They don't belong there. And for many of them, it actually leads to them not graduating. Sowell said that in the years he looked at, 25% of the Black students at MIT dropped out. So we think we're helping these students, but we're really not. We're mismatching them with the wrong institutions. They would thrive at a school where they were in the top 10 or 25% of the class. And they could be at the right institution. You know, the analogy I like to give is that, you know, I, I could do fine at a neighborhood pickup game in basketball. I could hold my own. I could have some fun. But if I got, you know, boosted into the NBA and put on the LA Lakers, it would be a disaster. I wouldn't be able to dribble the ball for two seconds without it getting stolen. I wouldn't be able to shoot without the ball getting slapped away. So I would just be a total liability to my team and I would be depressed and dejected because I was mismatched 
with the wrong league. And that's Sobel's point about affirmative action is that it actually helps nobody. Or the net benefits. Uh, I think it, uh, it front loads, just like minimum wage. A lot of these progressive issues are like, we're, we're going to solve the, we're going we're gonna to solve things by basically ruining the entire system. We're going to focus our resources on these uh, demographics and then the demographics have to change in order to like weed out the Asians because they're performing too well. I'm talking about like education in my county in order for a boost of grades for these, you know, we're going to solve this issue by changing the definition of words basically. And then, but over time, the high performing students are served less, the lower performing students aren't served anymore, but the people who are in charge get probably two or three years of uh, good feeling out of it or like look we solved this solution you know and then we kick the can down the road and things get worse later on um it's just weird because that's been happening over and over and over again but again same shit different decade it's like no these the people who end up in these bureaucratic positions end up doing the same damn thing so there's something wrong with our institutions or our bureaucracy perhaps that selects for people who make the same mistakes or make the same bad choices like is it fair to go to that systemic uh issue that the people who are getting into power are somehow uh, or the the structure that gets these george bridges's into power is somehow a problem that needs to be fixed well i, I think it really comes down to you know meritocracy if we believe in it or not and, you know, I, I like to say it's meritocracy versus mediocrity. You know, you, yeah. you got to take your pick. You can't have both. Yeah. No. You know? And, uh, you know, I don't think I don't, you know, I, I did a podcast the other day where one of the economists said, I was talking about social engineering and he said something which really shocked me. And it, it kind of threw me for a loop because I didn't know how to react. He said, you know, Alan, meritocracy is just another form of social engineering itself. And I was like, oh, you know, I always, for me, meritocracy is just this reality. It's not, it's not a, um, you know, a construct that you could either adopt or discard just by choice, like vanilla or chocolate. You know, to me, it's like this fundamental reality of almost like physics, like a law of nature that, you know, meritocracy is important and that you really want it, you know, and you want that surgeon to be the best. That's going to be operating on your heart, um, not necessarily one who got to his position because of other factors besides merit, yeah. you know, and uh, but I, you know, here's, here's an example from my own life that I think just reflects on this. I had to find a new dentist for my daughters and we got recommended to someone and it was a, a Chinese woman. I won't say her name. Um, and when we got to the office, the, her degrees were on the wall behind the receptionist desk. And she was uh, Harvard and MIT. I felt good. Okay, yeah. I said to myself, Chinese woman, Harvard, MIT, you know, she must be good. She's got to be good because she did not get any boost. She did not get any extra considerations besides her absolute merit for both of those degrees. From given what I understand about affirmative action, she didn't get any. So she must be good. And I, th I think it's so important 
that these signals, these degrees, that they mean something. It's so important that they really mean something. And, uh, you know, was she, was she good though? Fantastic. Okay. So the empirical evidence aligned with the, uh, yeah. Okay. The hood. I love her, but you know, you know, another thing is I used to take flying lessons years ago and I, I dropped out of it because I did not think (laughs) I had, I did not think I had what it takes to be a good pilot. Okay. You know, I was going to be the JFK of private pilots, the JFK junior of private pilots. You know, I was going to fly on the day when you shouldn't be flying because you really have to get there by a certain time. That was me. I was too impulsive. I didn't make good decisions. And when I get on a a commercial jetliner, I want that person. I don't care what they look like, but they need to be fantastic at what they do. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what gender they are. They need to have the 25 or 30,000 hours of proven excellence doing what they do. And I myself do not have that. I gave it up because I knew I would eventually crash. And I did not want to do that to myself and the people on the ground below me. (laughs) So I soloed once, you know, flew by myself in a private, you know, Cessna. And then after that, I was like, no, I'm not the right guy for the job. You know, so this is what I mean by merit. Merit Yeah, but what do we do with all the mediocre people? Because by definition, half the people in any given population are going to be below average. Or at least below the mean. I can't never use those words correctly. Well, there's a place for everybody. And uh, just like, you know, I I shouldn't be a pilot. Mm -hmm. I also shouldn't be a doctor. You know, I started college as a pre-med and I gave up halfway because it wasn't a good fit. That That's the way it should work. <laughs> okay. I shouldn't be a doctor and I shouldn't be a pilot. I should do what I do well. So, and those, um, in effect, we would need a society that, that values humility and gratitude in order for people to self organize into the proper position rather than envy um, compelling them to lie or uh, virtue signaling compelling them to uh, ruin systems in order to feel good about themselves or appear to be good. So there's got to be like a cultural value that precedes that in order for people to behave in a way that would sort them organically, I guess would be one way of saying it. And so with that in mind, I'm wondering to what degree has Thomas Sowell expressed his core virtues? Um, I don't know if religious uh, would be the proper framework or something, but it seems like there's got to be some sort of cultural um, values. And I wonder if he's expressed those. Share a quote with you about envy since you brought it up. Quote, envy was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. Yeah, there's no um, real irony in the fact that Canada has extended Pride Month to Pride season and it's the season that precedes the fall. No, they, they really did make summer Pride summer, so... It's just, it's an odd thing that we forgot that pride is kind of envy, kind of a, a dirty word. It's a four letter word. <laughs> it is. It's wordle word. It's actually five letters, but maybe I'll use that tomorrow. Speaking of four letter words, Sowell had this to say 
about four-letter words. Quote, the biggest secret is that there are no secrets unless work is a secret. Work seems to be the only four-letter word that cannot be used in public today. You know, so I, I did an episode, uh, I don't know if you know my origin story, but there's this Evergreen State College that experimented with highly progressive ideas and it blew up and they're doubling down, doubling down, doubling down. And yesterday they had like a live stream about this equity symposium or something like that for the actual uh, masters in public administration. So they're indoctrinating public servants in order to think along uh, equity lines. And what it is, is a bunch of people who are very mediocre. They're not good thinkers. They're yeah, not even good speakers, but the, all they're doing is producing word salad that doesn't actually add up. And it's actually really toxic word salad. But one thing that they constantly, at least one person on the panel was constantly talking about work, 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 work. We have to do the work and we do, do the, the work. There's nothing actually happening other than the only tangible thing that they had was we're going to uh, put more languages on a website and we're going to give space for trauma in government so people can express their trauma turn government into some sort of pity party, which is basically, I think, a prelude to turning it into a cult. Um, but for whatever reason, Washington itself has allowed this total mediocre contingent to get more and more power and do less and less in the process. And while the ideas are kind of dangerous because they're kind of communistic and they're envious and stuff. And uh, I don't think that they'd actually lead to anything other than disaster. And the one saving grace about Washington state government is that the people who are getting all this power are so unimaginative. They, the system is selected for the most mediocre people that I don't think that they could establish a gulag. You know, like if it came to that, they could never actually do any sort of glorious revolution. So they kind of shot themselves in the foot, um, which is a saving grace. That's that's my calculus on, on the matter. But it's still kind of perturbing that this government, um, and I think that it happens in a very, it happened in a very rich society, like a, like an incredibly advanced society where we don't know what to do with all these mediocre people and we have to keep on creating more and more jobs. And this equity stuff or this anti-racism quote uh, stuff comes along and just allows us to do some sort of weird kind of redistribution by giving a bunch of people of the right skin color all this power and the power just amounts to them just blathering uh, for hours on hours and hours on, on end um, to each other. Um, so it's not really harmful unless it goes into something like the George Floyd riots, um, you know, the course of 2020, that's when we kind of, I get kind of nervous, but even that stuff burns itself out because the P, the Antifa and BLM, they don't actually have discipline. They're not selected to be warriors. They're selected just to be infants and rail, get a bunch of money and then invest, you know, and then crook, crook off into the night with it. So it's not really a threat, but it is a drag on our society. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, in my episode 19, I talk about the mediocracy and there's a great clip in there from uh, one of Sowell's intellectual soulmates, Victor Davis Hanson. I don't know if you know him. Hmm. Oh, you have to, you have to listen to him, Benjamin. He is, I, I can't even describe to you how off the charts this man is. Um, his, his, it's, he has a podcast called the, the Victor Davis Hanson show. And I think he does three days a week. I mean, the guy is extremely prolific and mm -hmm. 
he was talking about how, every, and he's a historian, and he's, he's talking about how every revolutionary movement presents an opportunity to the mediocre to rise. And he gives examples from the Soviet Union, and he gives examples over history. And, and the example I always like to think of is Nazi Germany, which really gave an opportunity to the most brutal sort of people to become uh, you know, leaders in, in the movement. And you know, the thing about, the only place I disagree with you is I think these people can do a tremendous amount of damage because destruction is so much easier mm-hmm. than construction. And you know, can they build dams and, and, and roads and bridges? No, but can they tear them down? Yes, they yeah. can. Yeah. And, um, and that's, what they, that's what they do. And you know, if you look at the whole DEI industrial complex, diversity, equity, inclusion, I mean, where were these people before they were making two, three, four hundred thousand a year, giving Zoom workshops about white privilege. What were they doing before? Were they making thirty, forty, or fifty thousand dollars floundering with their career? I say they probably were, and now they're making you know five to ten times that amount, you know, peddling these ideas and you know, what a great opportunity for people who otherwise would not be able to achieve distinction in any normal field. That's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. But the thing is, is that the people who are, they are fleecing are actually like putting them into the position to be fleeced. It's like, it's like the suckers are begging for this schlock. I'm worried more about the downstream effects on what it does to our economy and our institutions. But like, it's like all the white people like the, the, there's like one dinner where white women pay a thousand twelve hundred dollars and they go get lectured. You know, they drink their champagne and they get lectured on how guilty they are. It's like, well, they kind of deserve to be suckered. It's just like I, I can't really wake you up. I can laugh at you like I, I, this is a, this is an interesting question. What what role does mockery play in uh, Soul's uh, thought? Have you have you noticed him getting kind of memeish, tetchy? Or does he, uh, he, he's, he's rather more sober in his critique style. I think Sowell is, is generally a shy, reserved person. Uh, let me show you his books and then you can tell what kind of person he is. So, so Sowell has written, according to my count, 47 books. And I've grouped them by category. So here are just the economics books. And I think this one here, Basic Economics, was the one that you read. Um, it, is, it is an amazing book, and I, I do encourage you to give it another try. Here are his political theory books. Notice how you never see his picture on any of the books. Mm-hmm. You don't know anything about them. They're just, I mean, they kind of look like they were designed by a kid in a high school graphic design class. You know, they're not really, you can, there's not a lot of ego to the man. Um, he did put his picture on his autobiography. Okay, kind of, kind of have to. How, how is the the that book? It's a great book. I mean, it, you know, I, I don't think that the 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 genius of Thomas Sowell is in his story. Um, I think it's in his words, in in in, in the ideas themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great biography by Jason Riley from the Wall Street Journal about Thomas Sowell's ideas called Maverick, which I highly recommend. I've read it twice. It's a great, great book, you know, about, it was an authorized biography. 
of Thomas Sowell um, with his picture on the cover. Um, but, you know, I think that if you just look at the books that he's written and, and on a wide range of topics, it's hard not to think that the man has had an incredible intellectual career. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, not to mention he's written, I think, over a thousand columns on every possible yeah. you know, subject over, Did, over many decades. Do you have a sense of what kind of, if he was put in charge of writing a constitution or something like that, what kind of state he would make? Like, and if that's, there's a precedent with uh, some other government, like what kind of government like he would put forward if he was put in charge of that? He's a huge fan of the one of the system we have. I do. I think he, he's a, a big uh, defender of the Constitution. I think he believes in interpreting the Constitution the way it was written and not reading into it and not viewing it as a living document, a living, breathing document. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's a big fan of Clarence, Clarence Thomas. And I, I know that Clarence Thomas is a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. They know each other. And uh, one of the key uh, parts of the Thomas Sowell story is that he's virtually unknown. I went to the Caltech campus here in Los Angeles, which is widely considered to be, you know, in the top five universities in the world. And I interviewed random people uh, and I, I have the recording on my podcast. Have you ever heard of Thomas Sowell? Thomas who? Sowell, Thomas Sowell. No, never heard of him. And I asked, uh, I think it was 30 people hmm. and I got 30 no's. Okay. I've never heard of Thomas Sowell. He is virtually unknown. And that's a key part of his story because he is intentionally being ignored. You, gotta, you really have to ask yourself, how could someone with su- such a track record of intellectual achievement be so unknown, especially that he's black? You would think that he would be a hero in the black community. But if you ask most black people at universities around the country, have you ever heard of Thomas Sowell? They will also say no. So Sowell is in effect being hidden from the public. Um, and so my, one of my, I mean, my main mission is to just introduce as many people as possible. And I get a lot of emails from people. I'd never really heard of Thomas Sowell, but I randomly discovered your podcast. Now I'm completely obsessed with him. I'm hmm. hooked. I've ordered his books. Thank you so much. You know, and um, that really makes, that that motivates me. Um, Because for every person who I can turn on to Thomas Sowell, they can turn on 10 people and it could just multiply. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts that the world would be a lot better place if more people discussed his ideas, read his books, watched his YouTube videos. And that's really what I'm, I'm trying to do. I want to get his books translated into other languages. Um, I mean, he's got 47 books. Surely five of them deserve to be translated into Better Chinese. Than have? Very, very few. Interesting. Very few. You know, if you go to the German Amazon.de and you, you type in Thomas Sowell, you're not going to find any German translations of Thomas Sowell. You know, a market of 90 million people don't have the opportunity to read him in their own language. That's, that's, that's a moral crime, Benjamin, a moral, 
crime outrage (laughs) (laughs) you must fix this Hmm. so i contacted his publisher i contacted the ceo of a huge publishing house and i laid out these plans i didn't hear back from him for weeks oh okay finally get an email dear alan We'd be interested in working with you to help popularize the ideas of Thomas Sowell. Let's talk. So we're making progress. We're making progress. So I don't know where that's going to lead, but I think the world is ready for a renaissance in interest in our greatest intellectual, our greatest living intellectual, who is Thomas Sowell. There's no question in my mind that he is the greatest living intellectual in the world today. Do you want to, have you already used his, your favorite quote of his? Would you like to send us off with a, another brilliant zinger from Mr. Soul? I would love to. So this one is more on a personal note. This one sort of inspires me on a personal, more soulful. I'll put it up on the screen. Quote, one of the most foolish and most dangerous things one can do is to take love for granted instead of nurturing it and safeguarding it as the prize jewel of one's life. He's a bit of a romantic. He is. He really is. Hmm. So what about you, Benjamin? Are you going to be reading Thomas Sowell? I will put him in my audiobook list. I'll, I'll give uh, Basic Economics another go. I do. I am interested in this conflict of visions. I have heard about that. And um, he seems like a good thinker to... Uh, wrestle with in order to produce the uh, ideas that I am uh, currently trying to produce. Here's the book I recommend for you. Okay. It's my favorite. It's this one here on the right. Intellectuals and Society. I lost it. There we go. Intellectuals and Society. Pretty boring looking cover. Pretty boring sounding title. But the thesis of the book is that Intellectuals usually get it all wrong. And there are very definite reasons why they get it wrong. Mm. And that the real wisdom in society is widely distributed among the common man Mm. and not in the intellectual class. And he gives many, many historical examples of why this is Mm. and how it plays out. And I think you know, given that you are a public intellectual yourself, I think you'll be really be able to relate to this. Put myself in my, in my place. <laughs> it, it'll bring a certain humility. Yeah, it'll bring a certain humility. If you want, if you want, if you want that, I don't know. I don't need. Uh, <laughs> I don't need any more pride in my life. I'll tell you that much. Every other day is Pride Day around here. Well, Alan, um, I would like to bring this episode to a close. So thank you very much for coming on, giving me the chance to explore your work and the work of Thomas Sowell. 
and bring his ideas through you, through me, to the audience to broad, more broadly uh, distribute them because I do think that he's very foundational and uh, from what I gather from him, a very good place to start or return to in you know going forward and, and wrestling with the, uh, the troubles of the day. So thank you. You're welcome. And uh, I appreciate you inviting me on your show. I've always been a big admirer of yours. I think you do a fantastic job asking the right questions. And uh, can't wait to uh, air on your show, on your program. One last thing I want to say is if you go to TomSowell.com, you can find this slideshow that I've been using here in uh, on the podcast. And there's a lot more slides that we, we didn't show. And there's a link to the podcast and all that kind of stuff. So um, thank you. That will be found down in the description. I assume you have a YouTube channel too, or is this just a podcast, which I'll link to? For now, it's just a podcast. Okay. All right. There we go. Audio only. Okay. <laughs> oh, hold on. My horse just came in the room. 